From 11FS, I'm Sarah Koshansky, and this is Fintech Insider After Dark 6, London and Atlanta. Coming up on today's show, we have UK digital banks might be profitable sooner than we thought. Snapchat cashes out. And whatever happened to the celebrity-endorsed cryptocurrencies? All this and more on today's extra special transatlantic episode of Fintech Insider After Dark. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. How are we doing? Fantastic to see you all here today. And for those who are listening to this uh, around the world right now, this is our sixth After Dark, which is kind of weird. So um, we've had a couple of cracks at this now. I think we're kind of like ironing out the creases, which is good. Oh, right? don't tell them that. Yeah, but it's... Uh, <laughs> I expect it to be perfect. Well, there's, there's a definite like alcohol to creases being lined out crack. So has is, <laughs> is everybody had a drink already? All right. I think we're probably pretty good to kind of get going in terms of what we're doing. So uh, over to you. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. I know it's hotter than the sun out there. My name is Sarah Koshansky. I'm joined by my co-hosts and 11FS colleagues, David Breer and Simon Taylor. So how are you doing tonight, David? Super good. Apart from the fact that I literally melted on the way to work today. Like, uh, other than, like, I'm not going to lie, I did get an Uber from London Bridge to our office just because it was too hot to You're walk. so damn lazy, man. I, I felt like I really trooped it. I walked in, I was sweating like crazy. But you know what? I earned it. I'm here and I sweat it out like all of you guys did. So give yourself a round of applause for doing that. So tonight is actually the first of two After Darks. Uh, we're running a transatlantic event. Um, so when we finish here tonight, the next one starts in Atlanta, uh, give or take a few hours. So hosted by our American team, that's Sam Moore and uh, Doug Bobbenhouse. So stay tuned and listen to both shows on Monday because this is only half, basically. Um, coming up for you tonight, we have a fantastic show. And as always, an irreverent look at the week's biggest and silliest news stories. But before we get into all of that... We have some guests, as always. So first up, we have the fantastic Marie Flament, CMO of Circle. Please give her a huge round of applause, ladies and gents. We also have Daniel Hegarty, CEO of Habito. And last, but by no means least, we have friend of the show, Simon Vanskleener, engineer at Monzo. So welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, as we said, we're going to take a deep dive into some of the biggest stories of the week. But are you guys ready? Let's have more energy. Come on up. Good. Good. I like it. All right. Let's get on with this. So the first story today is that the UK's digital banks may be profitable sooner than you think. Uh, this is an article that came from AltFi. The Monzo, Starling and Tandem all expect to have hit profitability by 2020 or sooner. How many people from Challenger Banks do we have? Hands up. Wow, that's like 10% of the room. All on this side of the room, though. Is this like a wedding? Did we get you to sit like <laughs> challenges this side, incumbents that side? Um, so the, the, the basically, the, the article picked up on the annual reports and uh, Starling expects to be profitable by 2020. Monzo said 2020 or 2019. I like you're hedging your bets. And Tandem has said 2019. We're uh, aiming for 2018. 2018? Keep us guessing, Simon. I like it. <laughs> Keep us guessing. <laughs> In Tom time. Sorry, Tom time. It's like Elon time. Elon time. Okay. So, okay. So, so is it, is it Tom time? It's just slightly quicker. Is that, is that the, uh, 
it's somewhere between 33 and 45 percent faster than <laughs> is humanly possible but that's what keeps us working so that's fast good. it's set high expectations exactly, it's like okrs yeah. right exactly so i mean we've we've kind of discussed monzo's losses and now i'm moving on to profitability does anybody have any initial thoughts on this i'm looking over this side of the table yeah definitely i think we're all you know we have investors and i think not being profitable is not okay we can grow but it's super important to be growing profitably so um circle actually has been profitable in 2017 and working very (laughs) thank you yeah the rest no no one okay it's um blockchain which we'll talk about more on um is is the thing we focus on but definitely on the topic of profitability i think there's just so long that you can go without being a profitable business i'm sure you'll agree we are resolutely unprofitable (laughs) (laughs) the thing is that is that is that true even of banks so when you think about you know we 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 always talk about well the, the press definitely fixate on how the banks aren't profitable yet and you know how they need to do it quicker is that fair the press articles that came out when we announced our 33 million pound loss were a bit um silly really because um for a startup like monzo um profit and loss is about how much money you've raised and how much money you've spent in that year right so we spent 33 million pounds building a full uk retail bank with a current account with our own card processor uh and an nps score in the 80s like that's a pretty good deal nps score in the 80s does anybody work in a high street bank in the room stick your hand up all right so there's a few people that will admit to working in a high street bank. (laughs) (laughs) nps score in the 80s net promoter score in the 80s that's uh that's a lot better than negative nps scores right so nps score in the 80s is pretty impressive but what strikes me here is is the stat around how much it costs to run an account per year for most of the startups in this space we're seeing an average somewhere in the 15 pounds per account per year for a current account that compares with high street banks that are around about 150 pounds per year so to get to profit is actually a much lower bar if you're it, like if it costs you 10 percent as much to run your business that's something where you can compete do you not think this is stuck breathing down the next time um, i completely agree with you like that it's a it's a much lower bar I, I think this is probably the it's like that last bastion of um fintech won't catch on it's like big bank going yeah but how are they making money like, look, they're not making money. Oh, no, don't money. worry. It'll, it'll be different when they hit scale, David. When they've got millions of customers, it will be different. Oh, and when they have the first fraud problem, it'll be different. Won't it, Simon? It'll be different. Do you know what I love? Like, years ago, when I used to work in another bank, they the Oracle and the IBM people used to come and they used to say, like, you know, you have to use our big databases and our big things. And, like, we were always trying to use open source software. And the big argument then was, like, should you even be able to use open source software? And everyone stopped talking about that now because everyone just uses open source software. But the thing that everyone forgets right now is that you could not build a Monzo or a Starling or a Revolut unless you built the entire thing yourself. Like the way you get to the cost of running an account for £15 per customer is you build it all yourself and you build it on the shoulders of giants. And is that true Is that true across? We've got three different business types here, really. So, Daniel, is that the same for you guys? Have you built everything yourselves or are you using a slightly different model there? And, and what is Habito for the uninitiated? Habito is a, an online mortgage broker in the UK. We're now servicing about 1% of all of the mortgages in the UK. But yeah, there was there's... Listen, I think I think 10 years ago, you could take a piece of the value chain and digitize it and create a better user experience and grab market share. Now, I think unless you're vertically integrating a couple of these bits of the value chain and providing a, a differentiated experience, 
it's not going to work. And I think that show, I think it bears out in the numbers. Look at a, like, I think RBS last year lost uh, about six billion pounds maintaining its current account infrastructure. So it's, that Mondo's losses seem like nothing. If you yeah. I mean, it's it. pretty small. Fry. Metro Bank launched in 08, still unprofitable. So I think the, yeah, I think the losses that we're seeing in the neobanks are, are some distance from being well, but, meaningful. But purely since 2008, the big banks have been fined 300 billion pounds. Like, you know, like we got to kind of put this in context of what losses actually mean, don't we? So, but, but I I think it's a it's an interesting one and I, and I think it's it's a different game like i'm i'm pretty old-fashioned i'm all for like businesses making money pretty much straight away type thing it's just how i was raised i'll be honest um but like in in the model from a vc perspective then actually you're not really expected to make money instantly in terms of what you're doing it's about creating the community around what you what you've got creating that demand creating the product market fit around the beachhead that you've got and then expanding it from where you are so i i think where we're at with the cycle from a challenge about perspective, we're exactly where we hoped we would be, which is we're seeing millions of customers getting into the the, the game now, either dipping their toe or moving wholeheartedly. I, I think it's that customer acquisition speed that's interesting, you know, sort of um, 10 to 20,000 customers per month is it, it's, it, that's net, that, that's a gain, you know, it's, it's quite, a, quite a consistent gain. Well, on that note, so who knows what CAS is? Hands up. Oh, about half of the room knows what. No. Oh no, maybe yeah, maybe a little bit more than half for the for the listeners at home who aren't from the UK. It's um, the current account switching service. So basically, there is a service in the United Kingdom that if you wish to switch accounts, you can do it in seven days, and your bank is obliged to switch you over. It has to, and it has to move all your direct debits and make sure that everything goes smoothly. It's on them. It's not on you guys. Um, and so they release these figures every quarter, and they talk about who's moved where. Um, and it's it's for those of us who love data. It's it's great fun. It's a nice little league table, isn't it? Well. Yeah, it is. So interestingly, the data from Q1 was just released. Um, Starling is the only startup included, not because Monzo doesn't do CAS, but because you only launched in April this year. Um, so Starling has 1,300 net gains. So, so for comparison, Halifax has 34,000 net gains. <laughs> so is that a but lot? But does that talk to the raw customer unfair? acquisition number? Because uh, like, if you're not using the current account switching service, then surely you're not switching all of your payments across. What you're actually switching, you've got this auxiliary account. So I have my main account that my salary goes into, and then I'm living out of this other account. I mean, is this true for you guys? Yeah, do you and do that? I think that's exactly what we're seeing, right? That you can also several, I mean, here, how many people do have different banks and different bank accounts? There you go, right? So All I think the room. everybody yeah. has more than one. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what it is, right? We challenge the banks, maybe it might be amazing for doing something and one service that you really want. And then you still need your main bank because actually good luck if you want to move your mortgage or maybe, you know, you should look at other solutions. But there, there are things out there that you still need to have different services. And I completely agree with your point, Simon, that cost of acquisitions, um, as challenges, we're definitely better at doing that also because starting from scratch, you actually can look at the data of who your customers are and how to get them in a much more more efficient way. And then actually cost of maintaining this customer is way, way, way lower because we're able to actually, having built system from scratch, are definitely able to maintain that at a cheaper rate. David, you've got a classic screenshot that you use in the client presentations we do, which is a picture of your bank account, which is just has non-stop moving money into your challenger bank of choice <laughs> transactions. Which will remain nameless. And that's what people do. They sign up, they they try Monzo, they have two accounts, and then one day they're, they, they're like, my wife Sarah, who just did this four days ago, five days ago, they go, you know what, I'm completely and utterly sick of my old bank and they just pull out their phone they hit the CAS button inside Monzo and seven days later their old bank account is just closed and they never have to deal with that stress again and like CAS is an incredibly important 
like button that mm. it make, it's possible to but do But even that. if Kaz doesn't get volume, this zombie account thing, whereby the big banks only see transactions going to a challenger bank and the old big payment, basically means that now the one competitive advantage that I did have that probably wasn't taking advantage of, which is I had your transaction history and I knew more about you and I could be, con- you know, I could offer you competitive pricing. Well, now that's gone too because the only people seeing your everyday spend, the people that are top of wallet are the challenger. I, I think I think that's the thing. I think it comes back to what is active. You know, I think actually the I know your definition, I know Starling's definition is very different to what a big incumbent organization's definition is of an active customer. So you know, the point where literally every transaction is literally just transferring money to my challenger bank of choice, then actually it makes it a very difficult life to to kind of live, doesn't it? So and, and especially from a data perspective, if you never see your customers, actually the whole predication of universal banking in terms of cross-sell and upsell completely falls away. But I would so, say even when large banks saw your data and they were not able to do the type of stuff that Monzo is able to do, right? Like so I think there is still like how do you use that data and what are you able to do with which again challenge the banks are just much, much better. And it comes back down to what's your infrastructure, right? So if I'm using these the, these legacy software vendors and this legacy uh, kind of processes around it, if I can't actually access that data, if I can't then read it and ingest it and do interesting things with it, then I might as well not have it. it, it it's into, I've got the data, but I, I'm useless with it. There's no point in me having it. Whereas somebody that does have it, that can do something with it, might be able to do something more insightful. So we're going to stay with Challenger Banks, but we're going to move it on. And we're going to talk about Starling. And we're going to talk about Starling ditching its trademark purple for a new set of fintech clothes. So the, that headline comes from City AM. Um, so cards for the bank's consumer accounts will now be teal. Well, business accounts will be turning navy blue. All cards are also now portrait and uh, the card info is on the back. Now, I think Megan is somewhere and she has one. That, there she is. Can we get a microphone over there, please? Somebody. Microphone is coming. So, so Megan, for those who don't know, is chief platform officer at Starling. Um, she is going. She has one in her wallet, which she may be able to hold up and wave. You should be able to see how bright it is. And luckily, the uh, pan is on the back, so she won't get her account stolen. So um, why is it gone portrait, Megan? Because of the way that we've switched it from landscape to being vertically oriented. The lady down there just gave us cards. Oh, but we're awesome. showing them to the audience for those who can't see. Yeah, so Sorry, this Megan. one is for the personal current account. That one that she's holding up or was holding up is the dark blue one, which is for business accounts. Um, on the one hand, it helps to differentiate between the different accounts that we have now that we have uh, business as well as personal. But we were looking for something that was designed more to fit our brand, something more in line um, with how we feel as a bank. And so this was part of that. One of the things that we were looking at as well is like the embossing on the back of the card, the things that you used to need to do in order to like when the they would take your card transaction, they literally run something over the embossing to get your card number. It just doesn't happen anymore. So it was a solution for a problem that didn't exist. So we took that off. We made it completely flat and we have a, an awesome new design. So I took a taxi in Germany a couple of weeks ago and they actually didn't have a card machine. So they had the old school clacker. So oh I gosh. wouldn't have been able to get that taxi in Germany. But that is Germany. That is yeah. Germany. I mean, they're not known for their innovation when it comes to credit cards. What do you guys think? Like, does, does portrait make a difference? Thank you very much, Megan. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. I just think there's something sort of beautifully anachronistic that we're like comparing card designs in 2018 when like NFC was going to was going to end this horror for all of us. Well, um, I did say earlier, like, why are we talking about that? That'll be virtual in the future anyway. And they were like, no, no, it's important. Cards are a fashion statement. And like, <laughs> things things change. And, and, and like, people absolutely love the Monzo hot coral card. And um, but eventually that'll become blasé and everyone will get used to it and you know we'll, we'll change and we'll do something else and I, I think actually being you know chief marketing officer I mean we're talking about that here so 
well done because that's the goal, <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. So I think the fact that people are talking about it, it's different. And um, so I actually stick my cards on my phone and they follow the form. I think it's actually brilliantly done on that. So I think the fact just that we're talking about it is differentiating. and Designed to stand out when you've got yeah. a little holder thing. I love the, I, I have to say, I do love the, um, the, uh, the teal one. I think it's nice. But isn't the logo upside down? Because if I put it in, I guess if I'm putting it in that way. I'm miming putting my card into a machine. I, 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 listeners, you can't see how confused David looks, but his confused face was absolutely priceless. This is just my face. <laughs> the one thing you can't change the card design is you can't change the ever so slight offsetting of the chip and like the OCD in me just like. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Center it. God. For some reason, right. that doesn't, Hashtag that's triggered. not a bigger deal when it's, yeah. The next story this evening is that the collapse of China. Chinese peer-to-peer lenders have sparked an investor flight. So a wave of defaults is sweeping across China's 1.3 trillion RMB or $190 billion peer-to-peer lending industry, making investors panic. It's the equivalent of basically a run on the banks. Everyone's trying to pull their money out. Um, at the end of June this year, there were 1,836 online lending platforms operating in China. About 150 have suffered from problems uh, since the beginning of June. Um, and we've seen a huge, huge number of closures. So the result, it's basically the result of a, com- a combination of uh, tightening regulation, financial risk, losses, um, problems is investors basically not being able to get their money back and police investigating a platform. Or my favorite, the owners running away. Um, <laughs> it, the problem is so bad that one city in China converted football stadiums into makeshift customer support centers to deal with the complaints. Do we have any thoughts on this? I'm guessing we have quite a few. There's a reason why banks have to do an ICAP every year and <laughs> prove that they have 8% capital to cover their, their lending and cover their deposits. And I think there's also a reason why regulation is actually very important, right? Even in spaces like blockchain, crypto, you can't let stuff run like that because if you're actually not controlling it, then the person who suffers is the consumer, right? So I think indeed that's showing that strong regulation is very important. I actually sat next to the uh, the founder of a Chinese P2P platform about three years ago, who was running the largest short-term cash advance platform in China, um, who'd been unable to get a bank account. So he, at that point, was running around $2.5 billion a year through his personal checking account. <laughs> and nobody spotted this? <laughs> um, yeah, he, he, was, he was concerned and let it be known concerned. that he was under scrutiny from the regulator and so was pivoting into iPhone insurance. So there's into a way what, out for sorry? everybody. <laughs> he, was, he was pivoting into iPhone insurance. So <laughs> Well, I mean, he's got the startup capital. So, you know, <laughs> you really <laughs> did. probably do a good job. But I think the interesting thing about this market, as you were saying uh, before we came on stage, Sarah, was peer-to-peer lending in China doesn't necessarily mean what peer-to-peer lending means to us. To us, if you're creating a two-sided market, I'm getting a savings product, somebody else is getting a lending product, and maybe there's an asset manager bankrolling it all somewhere in the background, but actually it's a marketplace and there is some lending happening. This is just financial products to fund small businesses that may have all kinds of things happening on the back end that don't necessarily involve lending. I mean, the fact that a lot of the people who were taking the money were running away suggests Ponzi scheme uh, for at least a few of these. The, the problem is an actual problem because SMB lending is very, very low in China and they really struggle. Um, Chinese regulators are trying to, this is quite serious, it's, it's funny to see people are running away, but actually Chinese regulators are not only cracking down on those uh, dodgy lenders, but they're also um, telling the banks to cut interest rates because part of the problem is actual there is actually demand. So the SMB lenders go there thinking they can get a loan. There isn't actually money, it's disappeared off somewhere else um 
it's uh, the, the really interesting quote is people that are running these P2P companies don't actually understand what P2P is. So it's basically they've put this label on it, but actually it's it's not what we would understand as it, and it's not. Isn't that like most ICOs though? <laughs> <laughs> you said it. So <laughs> any thoughts on this one? Any any other ones? I mean, I guess this is kind of the important of having a regulated market. I mean, what we saw in the US and, and in the UK is is different approaches. You know, Funding Circle and Lending Club and Zopa have been around for quite some time, uh, and they they initially weren't regulated either. But you didn't see this level of abuse. What you saw was something quite different. Uh, what you saw is those companies operating in quote-unquote an unregulated space, but actually gathering together as an industry and adopting their own sort of code of conduct. We will follow these rules voluntarily. We will self-police. And then, of course, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, years later goes, aha, that was really helpful. We'll turn your code of conduct and we'll beef it out a little bit. And then that's now regulation. So getting out in front of this, it can be really helpful. The Basel pillar rules that apply to banks that have been like tweaked every single year since 1975 are so important to like financial markets not collapsing like they're not stable these things like you have to constantly be looking at like where's the next risk going to come from where's the next mis-selling going to come from where's the next financial instrument that's toxic going to go turn toxic going to come from um and it's like i'm really really happy that like my money is in a regulated bank where like i get to go and i sat today with the chief risk officer and like watch her walk through an explanation of how like our calculations work and it's just something that I think the Chinese market's going to have to adopt. They're going to have to realize that regulation is not about slowing down. It's about staying safe. Well, there's a risk of reward balance, though, isn't there? I mean, the, one of the big problems with having everything in the regulated space has always been that the consumer was losing reward. I mean, a lot of the uh, savings accounts are effectively, you know, cash ices lose you money against inflation. So that you can see why people would chase returns in the consumer market. And peer-to-peer lending comes along and looks like they've invented something. And so far, and, and many others... And Initially, were the darlings of fintech. They were the ones that were attracting the big valuations. They were the one that everybody was getting excited by. But in the end, it just looks like any old lending business with a hedge fund buying the loans, right? So can we can we talk a little bit? I mean, we can talk about that, but I also want to talk about customer service held out of football stadiums because I feel like there's a couple of fintechs with some customer service problems that this may be, you know, the way forward. Um, sorry, Marie, you had a sensible point, and I got distracted by football stadiums. No, no, no. I, I think we can also talk about that. But I think that, that's yeah, because of World Cups and something and. <laughs> I mean, uh, any French here? <laughs> uh, no, but back, to, you know, back to regulation and actually finding the right balance, super important, right? Because the thing is that um, the space we move in evolve really, really quickly, right? So having the right balance to still be able to actually protect consumers and know that there is, you know, some sense of security that is around that, while at the same time letting innovation go forward, because if you just let what big banks have been doing, well, we're not going to see a lot of innovation and actually things are not going to be that good for consumers. So having code of conduct and actually, Simon, again, like huge shout out for the work you're doing for with GDF uh, is super important. And when the industry moves so quickly that you actually the regulators can't keep up, if the industry doesn't come together to explain, then you're stuck. And that's probably what's missing in China. P2P in China is like what they're living and breathing on, right? I mean, WeChat is just like the way things are done. So P2P is completely ingrained. But then maybe what's missing is that this additional layer of actually what do you do with funds when you're trying to work in P2P? Regulation can't move at the speed of technology. So yeah. you need the technology to be solving some of the problems for you and and understanding what the risks might be before the regulators have had a chance to keep up. Like regulation moves in seven-year increments. I I think that's 
the case, but that's like saying we're going to sort of go outside of the rules until the rules catch up with us. Like, I'm not sure that's necessarily the... So, you know, if you look at the, the FCA in the UK to a certain degree, actually, things like cloud computing, like actually it was a, we're open to what needs to be done and we're going to work with Oak North, wasn't it? To be in a situation, I literally looked at Oak North in the crowd then to get a validation of whether that was the thing or not. And it was. So thank you for the nod um, to, to, to make sure that actually you can move forwards with it. So I think this comes back to what is the role of the regulator? Regulator. Are they there to be the referee in this game or are they there to be setting the rules that everybody applies to? Because really that, that line of what is acceptable is continually changing. And, and you're seeing more and more regulators moving towards this sandbox approach. Yes, yeah. the FCA did it, but the CFTC and the OCC in the USA, uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore, uh, Hong Kong Monetary Authority, uh, Australia. Like, there are so many places now where this, this sandbox approach is the norm. Like it, it's, it's really become a thing whereby we recognize we need financial innovation, but we also need to control and manage the risk and make sure that financial innovation today doesn't look like it did in 2008. Yeah. And I think a lot of education is needed, right? On all fronts, even for people for, for example, when you work in blockchain crypto, keeping up when you're in the industry is already very difficult. So if That's you're actually... That's why you need to download Blockchain Insider. <laughs> <laughs> but then if you're on the regulator side of things where you actually deal with like zillions of different things, keeping up also with that is also very difficult, right? So I think having both sides come together is super important. So I would also say it's not a universal panacea for the consumer regulation. I mean, it didn't prevent PPI. It didn't doesn't prevent egregious overdraft charges. I think you know a level of consumer centricity that is rewarded with you know unit economics and growth that makes sense is is fundamental to that. I think on the other side, we we came through the FCA Innovation Hub, and actually, I'm not sure we would have launched. Uh, we we have a. a chatbot that can give uh, regulated mortgage advice. And I'm not sure we would have been comfortable taking on that advice risk without a friendly face at the FCA saying, this makes sense, we're not going to crush you. Hmm. Yeah, I think speaking for a friendly, friendly FCA face back there who's actually standing in a bright light. Do we, do we love you, FCA? <laughs> there are several FCA <laughs> friendly hide. faces in the room. We'll give them away. We're the nicest mortgage people, I, I, wherever I think, you are. I think that is a really interesting point because actually when you look at the, like, it's the vintage. You know, if you look back on a vintage, the first few tranches of the um, sandbox from an FCA perspective have, have actually produced some of the most widely used fintechs, really, as it stands at the moment. You know, so you've got um, very good companies sort of coming through that space that are now really sort of flourishing. So it's it's good to see it, but you know the proof's kind of in the pudding to a certain degree, isn't it? Yeah, I would also say I think the approach um, of the FCA is actually quite unique. Having um, large banks, so we work, for example, with Barclays, and for us coming here, one of the big thing was that um, working with the FCA with Barclays, we were able to come to something a common understanding, right? I think that's super important, and you don't see that very often in other countries. I mean, um, being French again, sorry, but like we won the World Cup, but not only that. <laughs> <laughs> We're also trying to look at how the UK is doing things because it's it's actually quite unique in that approach of customer centricity and actually uh, fostering innovation and at the same time protecting consumers. Sandboxes are coming home. So much as, <laughs> much as I, much as I, that's a perfect outro. Much as I love this conversation about regulation, I, I'm going to move us on um, to Snap cashing out. I think I said that right. This is an article from TechCrunch, and apparently Snapchat will shut down Snap Cash. Um, does anybody right? I asked this question earlier, and one person said yes. Who has Snapchat? Okay. Okay. Thirty percent of them. All right. Who okay. actively uses Snapchat? Yeah, so, so like four people. <laughs> who, who uses Snapchat for anything other than just making yourself look weird? 
Zero hands. Zero. Oh, okay, there we go. Yeah, because I I use it with my four year old girl to basically take like funny pictures, and that's it. I don't send it to anybody. That's literally all I do with it. So I'm going to make I'm going to make the point, and we definitely come back to that. So um, Snapchat had launched a peer to peer payment service, uh, which is powered by Square Cash. Um, that's gonna that's gonna be ended as of August 30th. This is uh, mostly in the US, and basically the idea is they forfeited this to to Venmo. The idea of peer to peer payments. So they'd launched it with the idea that you'd pay back your mates for like half of dinner or that round of drinks or whatever. Um, Actually, what happened was that people were only really using it to pay for explicit content. (laughs) Um, So there's two things here. One is it may be that, you know, they were losing out. Hang on. Is that what you're all using it for? (laughs) (laughs) Who put their hands up again? Well, you had your hands up, didn't you? Like, uh, is that what you use? I'm looking at you. Don't look at this guy right here. (laughs) So, yeah. So basically, the the payment service had been launched ahead of Venmo and Zelle. And the argument, the sensible argument is that, like, they're losing out on the payments transaction volume. The other argument is this was just too much of a PR disaster. And they went, nope, 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 backed away. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts. Yeah, maybe, maybe sad actually, because so um, Circle has an app called Circle Pay, um, which doesn't disclose your data, right? Mm. Um, no, but, uh, <laughs> which well is done. Peer, <laughs> which is peer to peer, which is peer to peer. And here's the thing, peer to peer is difficult, right? I mean, if you're not able to actually look very carefully at fraud, if you're actually not able to do your transaction at a cost that is actually very low, it's going to be very costly. Um, it's not the first time that we see that, you know, here uh, in the UK, there's been several players that did try peer to peer before and actually couldn't hold it. Same in Ireland. I mean, I'm seeing that all over Europe, there is always like a peer-to-peer app that is trying to go there. It's costing so much money that if you don't have other lines of business, actually, you can't sustain that. So the trick is that this can be something that is a funnel driver and that actually enables you to have a funnel for consumers and it's your mass market product, but it's not where you're actually going to make money. And if you're just going for that and don't have another revenue, it can be very challenging. It's interesting because most of the challenger banks in the UK now have pretty decent peer-to-peer capability just baked right in. And there's a peer-to-peer always felt like a feature, not a product. It's one of those things that you just need to have in any type of financial services. Peer-to-peer applicant. is actually what the first thing Monzo was, was. When there was only 11 of us, the original Monzo was just a way we could settle our lunch bill when we went to our work, leather lane market. The debate we always have when we talk about this on on the, all of our shows is kind of does it need to be standalone? Should it be in a bank? Like is this with Venmo's taken off so well in the US largely because it's so hard to pay somebody else? I mean, Monzo makes it as easy as is humanly possible to do so. I don't think anyone's done it right yet, and that's that's weird. Like I just genuinely think that like it's still a hassle when you go out with your friends to settle the, the bill at the end of the night. It's almost like you need this decentralized platform. Which which is like uh, some sort of stomach. <laughs> I, I did. I have settled debts with friends using crypto uh, back before it used to cost thirty pounds to make a Bitcoin transaction. Has oh yeah, there's else that. Settled debts with friends using crypto. No, that's literally zero. Oh, one hand, one, one hand went one. up. Shut up, Jim. I've been very cryptic about when I'll pay somebody back. Does that count? Or uh, like, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a, you know, a feature within the realms of everything else that actually happens rather than a standalone thing. I think Venmo and um, everything that was sort of seen with the Snapcash stuff is actually just a. Uh, an element of sorry Atlanta but the payment system in the US being shit no no let's let's ham this up a little bit screw you guys your payments <laughs> suck like, okay. we got good payments here it, Dan did you want to say anything this is what this is what happens when angry. Simon has two beers I'm just gonna it's, like it, I worry it, for you over it's there slight, it's slightly less than two beers oh, okay. which Mitchell Webb will tell you is the perfect amount alright you stole that from me 
Done. Well, I, look, I, think, I think it's important that we have a, a kind of a way to pay for explicit content that is, is <laughs> kind of straightforward. And, I would, and also, I'd be excited if Monzo would include it in my spending pie chart so I can compare it against my delivery spend and see if see how I'm looking. Someone <laughs> is going to find a mental model that clicks with everybody and they're going to capture the entire peer-to-peer market globally. And I haven't seen that yet. I think Venmo's gotten the closest, but... I think someone will do it and I'm betting it's going to be Monzo. I think if you, but if you look at Asia again, let's go back to China, right? In WeChat. Um, and, and that's like the perfect peer to peer. And that's the perfect peer to peer storm that then you can add other services on. To me, you know, innovation is actually coming really much from, from China. There is so much happening and we are all obsessed here with like, you know, UK companies and US companies, but actually, that's the other side it, of the It's planet. already happening there, but it is kind of a weird market insofar as they've tried to move into Africa and India and they've just not had the traction. And it's not a, yet. But but they've been trying for several years. It has have the big tech players to, to gain that payments traction, you know, the, the Facebooks and, uh, and even uh, Snapchat, bless them. They've all been trying to get this done. And yet... It still feels, I mean, Sarah, you were saying earlier, you were trying to pay a friend. What was that anecdote you were saying? And Facebook was kind of being creepy. Oh my God, yeah. So Facebook Messenger. So I, I, a friend said, you know, to put ticket to this thing. And I was like, yeah, sure. And she's like, I'll send you the money. And I was like, okay, cool. And then Facebook said, do you want to send the money? And they just interrupted our chat to ask if we wanted to use Facebook Messenger to send money. And she was like, oh God, no. And like threw her phone across the room. I'm not giving you my details. <laughs> and then I used Facebook Messenger to send her my Monzo details. And it was like, Sarah, do you want to set up Facebook Pay? I was like, still no. Still no Facebook back down. So you can you can be too um Maybe intrusive. that's why their share price is down 20%. Yeah, that and some other things. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe they've got some other issues going on. Um, So to move us on to our, and finally story, I'm going to introduce it and then I'm going to let you guys just rip. So basically, what happened to the celeb-endorsed cryptocurrencies? So this is from The Verge, um, and they basically gave an overview of what happened to the cryptocurrencies that celebrities vouch for. So um, does anybody know of any celebrity? Can anybody remember? Actually, this is a better test, because you've all heard about these before on the show. I, I imagine they're all success stories, and it all went wonderfully well. <laughs> and uh... Can anybody shout out a celebrity? Have we got a mic somewhere? Kanye West. Kanye West, okay. Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher, yeah. <laughs> Somebody yelled Ripple for those people who uh, are listening at home. Um, okay, so uh, we, we have a few here. I will throw them out there. We had Paris Hilton with Lydian Coin. We had Steven Seagal with, and I can't say this, Simon, what's it called? It's Bitcoin with two eyes. Um, <laughs> that literally is. But how do you say it? Because it's two eyes. So it's it, Bitcoin. It Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, also, um, I guess his Bitcoin is harder to kill. Oh. <laughs> oh. oh. No. It's a very 80s reference, isn't it? We let him write his own jokes, and honestly. My jokes um, are under siege. (laughs) (laughs) It's even worse. We had Floyd Mayweather dubbing himself Floyd Crypto Mayweather, and we had Ghostface Killer. Uh, In October last year, he launched his own cryptocurrency called Cream, a play on the woods. This is, I can't read this. David, you're going to have to do this for me. Uh, This is Cash Rules Everything Around Me, Uh, but he changed it to uh, Crypto Rules Everything Around Me. It didn't catch on. <laughs> so has anybody anybody heard anything of these guys lately? Did yeah, anybody no, buy any of these coins thing. for starters? Like, is there anybody who actually... Yeah, I think the term he's like, who's a shit coiner here? That's how it's called in the industry. <laughs> are you a shit coiner? <laughs> or are you a zero coiner? <laughs> okay, hang on. We're going to bring you a mic because that's a really interesting story. So somebody has it. There we go. So 
particularly cream was very popular among students. So I got really a lot of emails asking me, like, could you recommend me to invest in cream? So, so what, what, what did you can introduce yourself for the people who are listening? I'm a researcher at the business school, Vlerik Business School. Uh, so these are master students. Uh, oh, God. And, loads, isn't and, it? And what, and what was your <laughs> advice, just out of interest? Yeah, well... I think everybody would give the same advice. They didn't invest in it. <laughs> Thank you very much. So if anybody wants to know what's happened to these, I'm sure you do. So Paris Hilton's Lydian coin, um, after Hilton endorsed it, the SEC issued a caution against it. Since then, Hilton's kind of like stayed quiet. But in June, her father auctioned a $38 million mansion and allowed people to bid in Bitcoin. Okay. <laughs> yep. Um, Steven Seagal, uh, similar story. This past March, New Jersey regulators sent the Bitcoin founders a cease and desist order. So that's going well. Floyd Mayweather, uh, Centra, one of the coins he backed, was charged by anybody want to guess? A regulator? Yep. Cool. Um, DJ Khalid apparently was also involved in that. And the Ghostface Killer one, a month after launch, Cream suspended its token sale with no plans to hold it in the future. At its peak on January the 8th, Cream was trading at Anybody got a clue what it was trading at its peak? Numbers, anybody? Throw a number, less than a dollar. 50? 14 cents was its peak. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I think we, we, are, we are fairly done with the celebrity. Well, yeah, but what I would say, though, is it's interesting that um, we've seen this bifurcation in the coins market, right, where um, after the bull run of 2017, you've now had this sort of sideways market, with the exception of the last two weeks, where Bitcoin's up sort of 20 30% once again, for some reason. Um, probably rumors of, of what's happening in China and softening. But that aside, you have seen some of these crazy-looking coins come into absolute conglomerates. I mean, EOS is one of the top 10 coins in the world. Uh, they've raised more than $4 billion. Quietly, the ICOs have moved away from being this wild west of you know crazy silliness. Kind of looks like the early days of the internet. Like, exactly, you these- yeah, completely agree with that. I think it's exactly the early days on the internet where you had crazy projects. And actually, out of that was born Amazon. And out of that, you know, you have a Google and a Facebook. And today, like the, the ICO world is still a bit crazy and has had a lot of crazy frenziness. I mean, I've been contacted on LinkedIn so many times by Russians or people from I don't know where who was doing like, you know, white paper and you read it, you have no clue what's going on. That's not good, right? That's definitely not good. It's not good because people are going into it. And especially if you have a celebrity endorsement on it, it's worse because they trust that person and actually there is nothing behind. So so is it a general gist of things if you need Paris Hilton, Steven Seagal, Ghostface Killer to like advertise your thing? It's probably shit. Is that well, fair I think what you should do is, you know, as anyone, you should read what's going on behind. And if you don't understand it, then it's probably not good. And also the space needs to become more regulated. And we're seeing that, right, Simon? I think we're really seeing that, you know, end of 2017 was completely crazy. There was a huge frenziness. And now there are some super solid projects that are coming out there. There'll be a change in infrastructure. There'll be different chains that are coming. I, I think that's a really interesting point. Don't confuse the ridiculousness of what you saw before with the fact that there actually could be something here. Because it, it was Chris. Dixon of Andreessen Horowitz, who wrote in 2010, it always starts out looking like a toy. It always looks silly when it begins. I mean, if you remember in 2010, um, I, it was really obvious that the iPhone was a gimmick and people playing with them were, were stupid. The BlackBerry was the serious business phone. And yet 2018, you, very rare you even see Blackberries anywhere but a museum. So things can change very, very quickly. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I got an email from somebody that said sent via BlackBerry the other day. That Did was, they work for a large was... bank? Uh, n- no. Because those are going to be museums. <laughs> 
Um, for the two non-crypto people around the table, Dan and uh, Simon, uh, VC, so I know, well, I say non-crypto, you don't work. I'm married do. I know to you Sarah. have thoughts about crypto. <laughs> we could get your wife Put up your here. Buns, she probably right. has many thoughts. So uh, D- uh, Simon says, married to Sarah Finan, who joins us regularly on Blockchain Insider. Thoughts on this? Celebrity endorsed cryptos? Yeah, they're shit coins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look, I think, I think 50 Cent's the only person who's made any money out of crypto in the celebrity space, so I'm, I'd, I'd be following his investment advice more broadly. Yeah. I, I, th- um, I, th- I think that was debunked, wasn't it? It was put out there as PR, and then he actually made a statement to say that he didn't actually... I do actually, not own any. Yeah. Here is a proof yeah. I don't own any. Uh, he it was, was, around the time he was neither in the club, nor yeah. did he own crypto. <laughs> it was like there was a whole thing. So It was around the time he was being investigated, I believe, for tax fraud so he was kind of pretty <laughs> it's like no no i'm not holding on to secret internet money to try and get around a tax fraud <laughs> and on that note <laughs> we're gonna wrap this up thank you so much to our london audience for coming we hope you've enjoyed yourselves thanks also to tonight's sponsor finastra make sure you check out their open platform for innovation fusionfabric.cloud which champions ecosystem collaboration hashtag collaborate innovate so um firstly i want to say thank you to our amazing panel of guests so i uh, want to know if people can find out more about you daniel do you have a twitter handle a website something else you'd like yes to come out? there's there's a habito.com if you need some mortgages that you should definitely visit and you can find mortgages in the world um, it's like that guy in the pub with meat in his jacket yeah <laughs> um, and i'm on twitter at uh, dh underscore habito perfect and Marie. Yeah, you should also check circle.com, uh, brandly, uh, newly rebranded, but um, I'm also on Twitter. You'll find me there on LinkedIn. Uh, happy to get in touch. Simon VC, I'm calling you now. I'm Simon VC on Twitter, but don't follow me. Follow Making Monzo on Twitter. It's amazing. We literally post screenshots of stuff within an hour of doing it live. So if you want to see a bank getting built like live, follow that. Making Monzo. David, how about you? Um, what shall I go with this week? Uh, uh, let's go with Twitter still. So at David Breer on Twitter. And Simon Taylor. At SY Taylor on Twitter or on Blockchain Insider on iTunes now. And as for me, you can find me at Sarah Kashansky on Twitter. So we're going to wrap up the London leg of After Dark 6. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're going to hand it over to Sam and the team in Atlanta to take it from here. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Hello and welcome to FinSech Insider After Dark number six. Crowd, can you please make some noise for us in Atlanta? For those of you listening at home and around the world, this is our second transatlantic After Dark. Our first U.S. show was in San Francisco a few months back, but this time we're in Atlanta, Georgia, in the fantastic town hall space lent to us by the folks at Cabbage. And again, can we get a shout out for Cabbage, everybody? So my name is Sam Mall. I'm the managing director for Erica's here at 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host and 11FS colleague, Doug. Hi, I'm Peachy. <laughs> That's our Doug from Chicago. We have six amazing guests for you tonight, and we're not going to bring them all up in one group, all right? We're going to bring them up in two by two, so we don't want to blow your minds on the first go. So tonight, we're going to introduce our first two guests. First, we have Rob Frewine. You're welcome. 
one of the co-founders of Cabbage, Rob. Come on up. And to balance out everything that is Rob, we have Shannon Johnson, who's a group president from Cardlytics. Hello, Shannon. Come on up. Hello. Hey, Sam. How are you? I'm good, Shannon. I'm so sorry for pairing you up with Rob, and you're going to learn why. All right. So our first news story, what we're going to do is dive into little 10-minute segments, all right? Talk about what's happening in the news and get feedback from industry experts such as Shannon and Doug. I'm Rob, by the way. <laughs> and, and Rob. All right. So our first story actually comes from Business Insider. So Uber and Venmo are partnering to deliver a new payment experience. So in the news, what they're doing is they're going to deliver a seamless new payment experience that's available with Uber and Uber Eats. More than 6 million payments on Venmo mentioned Uber in the description. You know, you can go out there and look what's happening in the feed. Just over the past year itself. So Uber customers ordering rides and food will soon be able to pay with their Venmo balance, the link bank account, credit card, or debit card. That way they can easily split the cost with friends and family in the Venmo app for no additional fee. Users can share their purchases in their Venmo feed, as they always do, with custom emojis. I think that's, I don't know if that's innovative, but the custom emoji part is interesting. And that's going to be exclusive to that partnership, with Uber being the first company to have a branded emoji in the app, which obviously is innovation in financial services in the U.S. Um, Doug. So for each of these, we're going to do 20 seconds to Doug. All right, so we're going to let Doug give his little rant and what he thinks on that. So, Doug, you got 20 seconds. Okay. Is this a big deal? Um, I don't know if it's a big deal. You know, uh, when PayPal bought Braintree, I don't even think that they knew that Venmo was in the deal. And so Venmo has turned into like a big thing uh, for, for them. And, and now, sure, it's getting baked into various digital propositions. But, you know, your Venmo account uh, displays everything out in public if you don't turn it off. And, you know, I don't know. If I necessarily want everybody to know where I went in my Uber ride, you know, I mean, most of the time it's probably not where I said I was going. <laughs> and you're not married, so that really doesn't apply. I would be screwed. So, so Shannon, I'm going to start with you. Is this a big deal? Is this partnership a big deal or not? I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's a big deal for a company who's trying to rebuild their brand and another company who's trying to build their brand. But for consumers, it's only a big deal if the benefit is good enough to get them to shift their payments behavior. And really, the only new feature here is fare splitting. And unless you have a bunch of friends who share cabs or eat food with who you have a hard time getting them to pay you back, it's not really differentiating. It's, it's no different from the past. And in all fairness, what we have up here are two of the most successful, I would say, fintech companies, in my opinion, two of the most successful in the U.S., but also globally, right? I mean, one of our founders, David Brayer, headed up innovation at Lloyd's Bank in the U.K., and he's actually implemented Cardlytics. So he's seen that solution. So, you know, when you think about this, if you were at another conference, you'd be paying a lot of money to get this type of feedback, folks. Just saying, and you're getting it for free. <clears throat> so appreciate that. Um, Rob, I'm going to come to you. How important, because when we think about Cabbage, I think this is actually applicable, this question. How important is it that Venmo is offering bank-like solutions without being a bank? Or are they? So I, so I, think, two, I think I have two points. One is you might have seen that PayPal stock went down today. And a lot of it is actually due to huge volume um, that, of Venmo that is really not monetized. And so there's this concern that they're not monetizing the huge payment value, uh, volume that's coming over Venmo. So I, I'm not familiar with this deal. If it's a monetization deal, it makes a lot of sense for them. It doesn't sound like it is. My second point is, why do you call it after dark? It is clearly before dark. 
because in London it's dark at three o'clock, you smartass. This is Atlanta, all right? If you had like cool blinds, you know, and invested in these, yeah, those are the cheapest ass blinds. Keep, keep, wait a minute, wait a minute. Keep first trying, of all, Sam. Keep first trying. of all, who enjoyed wow. the lobby experience today? Okay? Very nice. I'm glad you imploded your lobby as we scheduled this and didn't tell us. I'm glad we had to come in the service end. We wanted to make you feel at home. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm from Detroit originally, and it did feel like home. Um, the big topic in the UK on this, though, was there was articles that came out that were talking about how the Venmo transactions, basically, you can see everything. And talking about the security. In the UK, this was an incredibly big deal. But Shannon, I'll ask you, do you think Venmo's secure... Because the transactions, all the details are pretty much readily available. Do you really think that's a big deal? I, I think it's a, a really big deal. And the fact that Venmo's default settings are still public is, is unimaginable. I think given what's happened with Facebook and, and you know, social media being questioned in terms of all this being out there for everyone to consume. Because any, And I used to work, I used to run a large debit portfolio for a bank. Fraudsters can piece together different, you know, your contacts, who you're paying, and put a whole pro profile together, and your your security could be at risk. That bank is a little too open. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, th there was actually a story that came out a little while ago. So I have four kids. Okay, I say that on every podcast. That's why I look like shit. I have four kids. All right, and two of them in college, and one getting ready to go to college. Rob has two kids, and he looks like shit. But I love you, Rob. Um, but here's what I find interesting. Really? This real? Yes. Because you out. gave me so much. Get shit. out. So now, now we're already booked. <laughs> but here's what I found amazing. This I don't know how many saw that story about the college kid who was dealing weed and he was getting paid by Venmo and his whole thing was you had to give me the coolest emoji ever. He got caught, but they also know every single idiot that bought the weed from him because the transaction history is out there. So what I find interesting, if y'all didn't know, everyone's like, oh my God, deleting the app right now. That lady right there, right there, the blonde is deleting. I can't believe you were doing that. Here's what I find funny because the Guardian on the UK did a big deep dive on it. The default setting for transactions when a user signs up for Venmo? On. On. Not off. By the way, everyone is seriously, no one's looking up. Everyone's looking down at the app right now. So the users can change it to private, right? You go to the app settings, but guess what? It's not easy navigating that. So, so Rob, I mean, you, you've got a solution that you built out, right? Yeah. Would you ever start with that type of setting, especially on the privacy side? You expect me to answer yes to that question? I mean, seriously? I'm setting you up. I feel like I'm in softball. court and you're asking me the questions you know I'll get, you'll get the answer to. Mm -hmm. No, we would never do that, Sam. We would never do that. So I'm going to ask the audience. How many, how many in the audience use Venmo? Every freaking hand. Who takes Zelle over Venmo? And you actually got booze. I freaking heard a Square that. Cash out there. Oh, Square Cash. There, there, yeah, there was Snapchat. Uh, cash, Snap cash yes. used by yeah interesting people. That's dying. That's dead in August. Yeah, that's that's gone. You know, pay me the snap. So Venmo overwhelmingly won that. Shannon, I'll ask you. Do you think Zelle, the numbers we're seeing, are being overpromoted by the banks? Do you actually think Zelle is competing with Venmo, or is that hype? I mean, Zelle published its its last quarter's numbers today, and eleven percent growth quarter over quarter. They're growing significantly. My hypothesis is that they're getting new users, users that maybe would not have used PayPal or Venmo in the past because those folks are already caught up in that network, but they're getting new users. And I think um, the real shift we'll probably see over the next few years is when more Venmo, PayPal, 
users shift over to Zelle if they're pulled into that network. It'll be interesting to see. That would be my hypothesis, though. It'd be interesting to see them break it out um, from a business perspective, because I think I, I end up paying a lot of people with Zelle because you know they're small businesses and, and they want to be paid that way. So, so Rob, I'm, I'm going to let you wrap up because this is your house. So you, you know you're you're good with that. Rob's house. They were in Rob's house. Catherine's as well. Yeah. Go. Well, it, Catherine comes on later to like repair all the damage you've done reputationally to Cabbage in these ten minutes. But Venmo, do you do you think it's actually making any money for PayPal? Well, I think uh, I think if you read the the quarterly from PayPal, you know they've had huge growth, but it's not making money for PayPal right now for sure. But does P 2 P make money? Huh? Does P 2 P really make money? I think, you know, I think it will over time. I think, you know, the, the business models will evolve, but I think right now it's actually a bit of a drain, but I, I think, look, PayPal's done phenomenally over the last six months from an enterprise value perspective. You can't really complain about where they've been, but they have to reorient their, their story a bit. When you talk to analysts, you know, you, 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 they've been talking about payment volume and dollars um, transmitted for a long time. Then you bring Venmo in, which is largely free, and they end up um, having to change the story. So I think that's the problem that PayPal's facing. I think it makes sense for them to be grabbing as much payment volume as possible via Venmo right now, but I think they're gonna need to figure out how to monetize that overall, which I think they will, smart folks. And that's always the problem with, with new startups like this, right, is the monetization model. Again, the greatest idea in the world, you need to make money. Absolutely you need to make money. Um, that's, uh, look, when you're in the money business, you're always looking for inventory, and it's good if you're making that inventory yourself. Do you think, uh, do you think the Venmo card is a strategy to try to monetize the money that's in their accounts? Oh, yeah, without doubt. I mean, I think, there, I think you know, there's probably a bunch of people in uh, San Jose right now on a whiteboard figuring out a monetization strategy and more monetization strategies, without a doubt. So does anyone know what the most successful mobile wallet is in the U.S.? Yeah, say it. You said it. What? Starbucks, right, Shannon? It's Starbucks, right? I mean, all the money they're actually holding on those cards, right? Um, I know last year it was published that Venmo's daily transaction volume was higher than that of Starbucks. And yet, we got a monetization problem, right? Yep. So if you're a startup, if, who's a startup person in here? Right, raise your hands. One, two, yeah, Rob, <laughs> you're not a startup. I'm you sorry. know what I like when we're called a startup though, it's like getting no. carded at a bar. No, what, what company? Coins. coins, coins, shout out to coins. What's your name? Woo! Christian? All right, coins. Everybody, go look up the coins with a Q. With a Q. Oh. You should have done it with a. You should have, you should have done it with a K. Yeah, cabbage with a K. You, K's right. are better. Wait, so Sam, I want to point out though. So Venmo does charge for instant access to the balance and the Venmo account. That yep. is a huge advantage that Zelle has. It's already in your account, so that's a source that could be a source of friction. And, and it's also yeah. And I know with Venmo, it's it's, it's basically a verb, right? It's, it's got an action. Zelle sounds like. Crap is the name. But anyways, we'll judge it the next time. We come back a year, we'll, we'll do a judgment on this. All right, we're done with 10 minutes. Shannon, Rob, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank You're you. a lot of good friends. Okay, I mentioned before that we had a London show going on at the same time, and it was an audience like this. London's a huge fintech hub, all right, a lot like New York, although Jeff from ADDC would argue that so is Atlanta and Georgia, right? Yeah, Jeff! I'm sorry, we'll do that again. Jeff from the Georgia Innovation ATDC would argue that Atlanta is a Finnovation hub, right? <laughs> uh, screw you, London. So what we're going to do next, we're going to bring our next guests up. Um, and I want to hear a lot of noise. Uh, we're bringing up Andrew Morris, who's the head of content at Money 2020. Andrew, come on up. Do you will. 
and Catherine. <laughs> Catherine, 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 Catherine. She co-founded this along with Rob. And if I don't say this, Rob laughs. She's also the 98th most powerful woman in the world, according to Forbes magazine. And everybody at Cabbage is tired of hearing I love bringing that up every time I see her. All right. And she hates when I do that story. All right. Second news story. This actually came out of TechCrunch. Facebook, Google, and more uniting to let you transfer data between apps. And they call this the Data Transfer Project. Stupid name. There's a new team up between tech giants to let you move your content, contacts, and more across apps. It was founded by Facebook, Google, Twitter, and Microsoft. Anybody notice who was missing? Apple. Imagine Apple not playing with everyone else. The DTP, <laughs> which sounds like a song by, what was that rap group out of uh, Naughty by Nature? The DTP today revealed yeah, its plans. DTP. Yep. Revealed its plans for an open source data portability platform any online service can join. There's on their website, they say the contributors to the data transfer project believe portability and interoperability are central innovation. Making it easier for individuals to choose among services facilitates competition, empowers individuals to try new services, and enables them to choose the offering that best suits their need. Creating an industry standard for data portability could force companies to compete on a utility instead of being protected by data lock-in that traps users because it's tough to switch services. 20 seconds of Doug. I mean, is this uh, like GDPR, PSD2 for social in the U.S.? I don't get it. I mean, I, I mean, I, it also scares the shit out of me to think that there's going to be some open API that people can like potentially get my stuff when I'm supposed to be transferring it from Facebook to Google or something. Well, I mean, we've had a major issue in the U.S. around how many, how many people use Facebook, just out of curiosity. How many noticed the, take, the, the tanking that Facebook took today? Anybody know the final number they lost in market cap? I think it's 120, 120, 119, Jesus. Well, they started at 615, billion dollars, but damn, I think that is the biggest drop in the history of the market, right, for a thing? Yeah. I still think Zuckerberg is doing all right, but damn. So let's talk about the data privacy side of this, Andrew, all right? And, and data privacy, by the way, I'm going to let him give a little shout out on the money 2020 side. Correct me if I'm wrong, but data and privacy is a massive part of 2020 this year. It is, it is. But before I do that, I'm going to give evidence why Atlanta is an awesome fintech hub. Because if you go to the Money 2020 conference, the largest fintech conference on the globe, and you look at the number of people who attended by a state, California number one, big state, Silicon Valley, New York number two, Georgia, Atlanta number three. Does that surprise anybody in the room? Because when he told me that before the show, you homers, come on. I was thinking Charlotte, you know, Jacksonville. Howard Bush is from Charlotte, damn it. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a suburb of Atlanta, I think, Charlotte. I'm not sure. <laughs> now you have to answer my question. No, I am, I am, I am. So, so absolutely, data is, when we look at what were the, the three or four you know, big overriding themes, data was it, right? So, so is this a big deal? Well, it is because the topic of privacy is a big deal and GDPR and, and data monetization and all the things we've been talking about. The interesting thing, though, is Apple's not playing. And you think about standards, I've always felt that market share sets standards more than consortiums or standards bodies or whatever. So um, 
So that that's an interesting thing. Is that Apple still what just short of half of all smartphones? So uh, to me, that their absence makes a difference in how big a deal it is. So I'm, I'm curious, Catherine, your your company at the heart of it is data, right? That, that you're looking at. But for those that don't know, and this is in, in I'm going to say Europe a little bit that might be listening in Africa or something like that. Can you kind of give me with a 30-second spiel on Cabbage? Our, our data and technology platform enables real-time lending to small businesses, and we are devoted to providing cash flow as a service to small businesses in the U.S. and around the globe. So, looking at that, when we talk about a consortium like this and try to set standards, do you think this will influence the banking side of this whatsoever? How many people here are... 35 years or older. Just raise your hands. Yeah. If you so if you're that age and you remember when you couldn't move your mobile phone number from one carrier to another, and it was a real fucking pain in the ass because you couldn't you, you you had to change your whole life. You had to tell everybody your new phone number and it took a long time. And it's the same thing with banking. If you don't have access to your own data about your own financial services or social or whatever it is, it makes it really hard to change services. They lock you in. And so at Cabot, it's really important to us that our customers are able to share their data with us so that we can understand their business performance. And I think the same thing applies to all the other financial services products. Portability is really important. So in the UK, how many are familiar with PSD2 in this room? PSD2, the whole idea of that, right, is to say you are too locked in. The banks have way too much domination when it comes to the market. So you're going to have to open up those walls, right? I mean, we, we've built silos. We know this. Anybody who's been in banking forever, the idea of anybody touching my data. So for those of you that are 35 old and years old and all that, you remember screen scraping, right? You go in there and grab Yodely aggregators and everything else. And, you know, companies like Ch Anybody in here from Chase? I'm talking slightly shit. So Jamie, hey, Chase, we love Chase, right? Good friends. But, you know, basically turning the nozzle off, right? and blocking you from going in and doing that. And Cap1 has made moves like that too, because you want, data is everything. It's the gold, it's the oil. You hear that constantly. Yeah, well, Sam, there are two sides of this, right? So there's the, there's the what Catherine's talking about, the data portability and control of your data. And that's what's intended by the, uh, I'm down with DTP so right. project. So, so it's, it's that, but I think there's also this underlying concern of, hey, I'm already sharing my data with, Facebook and uh, Google, et cetera. And so the, the privacy issue, and you made an interesting point about the difference between Europe and the US in terms of privacy. I felt that we were at a point where we were just, privacy's over and we're cool, we're cool with that in the US. And I'm, I'm feeling that the tide might be turning and that GDPR in Europe could potentially change the momentum of how Americans think about yeah. their data privacy. Do you think that, do you think that uh, seeing all of those privacy notices on your emails, I mean, all of us in the U.S. saw all the same, you know, are you okay with us continuing to send you this message? You know, I mean, we all, we all had to answer those things. Do you think that that was an eye-opener for U.S. people? Well, I mean, it, maybe I'm just closer to it because I'm looking at content and paying attention to what's happening in Europe and others aren't. But I had thought that, okay, it doesn't matter. It's over. Now I'm not so sure. I have a question for the audience. Um, how many of you canceled uh, email that you were getting because you didn't know that you were getting it and, and GDPR sort of uh, announcements? Uh, yeah. Okay, the one lady with the cool tattoo loved that question. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, yes. Yes, not just a lady, that's Catherine. That is another Catherine? That's Catherine with the coolest tattoo ever. Cats, cats are taking over, is that the deal? Catherine, our other Catherine, what's up here? You don't operate just in the US. 
So you have to deal across borders. So when it comes to data and privacy, I mean, what, what steps do you take? You know, it's interesting. There's a, a privacy and control are two different things. And I think what you're talking about, people, when you say privacy, I think people assume that it's about, are people seeing my stuff? But a lot of it is about, am I in control of who sees it? And do I understand what that process looks like? And so from our perspective, it's really important because our customers are authorizing real-time access to third-party data sources that we're using to make decisions. And that ability to authorize is really important. Their control is really important. Privacy is, I'm not going to do shit with your data that I didn't tell you I was going to do. I, I think that's baseline assumption. Like, don't do stuff that I didn't tell you to do. And the other part is, do I have control of the information that I need to share with you? And I don't think people really understand necessarily the two sides of that coin. Is there anybody in here that's like from compliance side of the house? They never should. Please say no. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys want to do? I think we can get away with a lot of stuff. Please right say now. you have a compliance officer. We have some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we should seriously end right there. <laughs> There's any regulator floating around like, oh my God, or not, what We is? love the regulators. I spend tons of time in DC, Sam. Yeah. Sam. Oh, Sam. Sam. Sam is policy. Sam is policy, not compliance, but he can tell you that we do lots of things. But Sam, I'm curious, and I'm going to let Catherine talk for you, but I am assuming you are spending a ton of time at both the state level, the national level, and I'm assuming when you start branching overseas, it gets, for those in Europe are going, I don't get it. What's the difference between state and federal? And oh my God, you think Europe is fucked up when it comes to regulatory environment? First in, last out. First in, last out. Sam is first in, last out when it comes to cabbage. That's actually a good motto. Somebody tweet that. Sam is first in, last out. All right, we want to thank Andrew for Money 2020. We want to thank Catherine, everybody, if you give him a round of applause. <laughs> You're taking pickles. Catherine has oh. a thing for pickles. Um, in here, let's do our, our last news segment. We're going to bring up our good friend Howard Bush. Howard from Charlotte. Come on up, everybody. Howard. <laughs> Howard. Howard is, oh God, your job title. He's from Microsoft in Charlotte, of all places. You are a 20-something year banker? Yeah, 25. 25-year banker. And Howard is the nicest guy in the world. My entire team loves Howard. And I mean that. They love my wife. I love you guys. You guys are awesome. We had a dinner last night with a bunch of folks and did a podcast. And I walked into the kitchen. My wife has never met Howard. I walked in. My wife was crying and hugging Howard. <laughs> and I'm assuming it was about me, <laughs> is my guess. And we got Ginger Schmelzer. Ginger, come up, please. Everybody, Ginger. Ginger is the owner and the principal at GDS Advisors. If you didn't know it, I'm going to brag about Ginger. I've known her a long time. Ginger actually introduced me to Uber, one of my favorite stories years ago. Told me about this really, we were in Phoenix. He said, there's this really cool thing called Uber. And I don't remember, that was like way early. Ginger was awesome. If you go Google her on American Banker, one of the 20 most powerful women for like five years running. She is, now you're a stud. Two years. It was five. <laughs> I voted for you five times. All right, a next story. You're welcome. Last story comes from payments.com. It's about Visa and MoneyGram. And the Visa team partner up to deliver real-time global P2P. We really talked about P2P payments like crazy than this. MoneyGram and Visa announced today, and that was on July 24th, that they have partnered to deliver real-time digital disbursements to MoneyGram customers using Visa's push payments platform, Visa Direct. They launched this in October, and they're going to launch this in October in two key markets, Mexico and the Philippines. Sorry, Atlanta. Uh, MoneyGram will expand its options in which receivers from those markets may receive and use funds instantly. 
via their bank-issued Visa-branded debit card or their prepaid card. And centers may choose the options by which they move those funds. Doug. Yeah, so Visa Direct's been part of uh, uh, Visa's API for a while. And, and they're using this thing called the original credit transaction, which is basically like a reverse, it's like a return to a card. So, so people can push money to, uh, to cards if they want to. Um, I think it's kind of cool that they're starting to do this internationally, but it seems to me like it's potentially a money laundering tool. So, um, wow. Anybody from Visa in the room that hates Doug right now? <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, MoneyGram's had, you know, those kinds of issues in the past. Anybody who's doing remittances has that as a major concern for them. But, um, but I, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's neat. It's, it's interesting that they're using the OCT for, for international stuff now. So that's, that's, that's an issue. I mean, Ginger, do you look at this as a global P2P play? I mean, yeah, it's a global P2P play. But I think it's interesting. Remittances, there's like a single digit percentage of remittances that go to people that have a bank account. That have a card, right? It's cash. It's like it's like ninety odd percent of these are cash because people live in villages or in towns or in cities where they don't have access to a bank or to an account or to an ATM. And so, having the ability to send a transaction to a card or an account is interesting and a good option for many people, but not for the vast majority of folks who are receiving remittances. Why do you think they picked Mexico and Philippines as the the first entry for this? Because they're two of the largest recipients of funds from the U.S. And the, Mexico is the number one, and Philippines is the number. Three, I three, think. Three, yeah, three, yeah. And there's also a reasonably high percentage of people who, in those countries that might have a card. I mean, yeah. I mean, well, it's not it's not necessarily where the remittances are coming from. I mean, people who are in the states sending money to those places are probably not sending it to a card. But um, but there's there's a lot of cards in both those places. Yeah. You know, well, it's not just especially in the Philippines. It's not just the U.S. There's a massive influence in in the Middle East. Right where there's a ton of um, construction and, and day labor type work that's going on, so I mean it, it, it's it's just not isolated to those. But I, I kind of get it for those two as a starting point. But when we talk about cash being king, right? Um, it's it's interesting. Again, we have a global audience, right? So we're talking like Sweden going completely digital when it comes to payments. They actually have merchants that refuse to accept cash over in the Nordics, of, of all places. In, in India, um, when was it, a year ago or so, where they actually got rid of one of the currencies? They got rid of like the, basically in India, everybody's taken, not everybody, but a, a huge problem there is people not having money in the, in the open market, right? Where they're taking cash and, and there's not the ability to track it. So you get into money laundering, you get into the black market components of that. So in India, if I remember right, they actually took the equivalent of like a $5 bill and a $10 bill and just said it no longer exists. And it created chaos for a little bit of time. Because the new bill they introduced, yeah, they introduced a new bill, right? New format. And the fucker wouldn't actually work in their ATMs. They didn't think of that. I mean, you have those type of, of, of influences when it comes there, right? I'm curious when it comes to plays like this from Microsoft's standpoint, right? And, and talk, if you don't mind a little bit, what's your role at Microsoft? So I'm the head of banking capital markets for our Azure cloud capability. So, so I the cool part. Uh, the cool part. The cool part. But you're dealing with banks constantly, right? Absolutely. And real-time payments is a big push. Um, you know, with the PSD2 trying to drive, uh, having transactions completed within 10 seconds, which is really slow when you think about wanting to have cash right away. But what MoneyGram is doing in terms of the real-time using cards, if you look at all their competitors across UK, Australia, you name it, they, it takes one to three days to actually get your money. 
So being able to get something that's quick and access uh, is really important. And when I was at Bank of America uh, years and years ago, we had a payment plan or payment process that sent money back and forth to Mexico. And the highest volume day was Mother's Day. But because our cryptic system, it, was, it took about five days for it to get there. So I'm glad that there's actually progress. Um, but you know, the, the, the thing is, they make a float on this, right? right. It takes three days. They're, they're sweeping overnight. <laughs> Do we think that maybe this is an aim at the, at the higher end of the market? Because, I mean, MoneyGram's got ways to send money all over the world anyway. Cash payments. You can pick your cash up in a couple of days in most places. So is, is sending it to a card intended to go after a higher end of the market? I think it's to get more volume actually, because I think, you know, you've got a location, you have to go get the money, you have to get a location to, to pick it up. This is where you can, any point of sale, long as you've got a device to swipe QRT, whatever it is, it, it provides you faster ways to spend money. I think Visa Direct did two trillion, I think they reported in June, they did two trillion in transactions, debit and credit transactions in just that quarter. That's a lot of transactions. So Ginger, what about the risk and fraud side or the hacking side of this? Major concern? It always is, right? It always is, yeah. I mean, it, it, Doug said it before, right? The Western Union money group have been subject to all kinds of scrutiny because of this. And so I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to create any new level of it. I think Visa's got great controls in place. But I think the remittances have always been, I mean, Bank of America had all kinds of problems when they were offering that service. It's, it's certainly always a really big concern for any player in the space. Um, MoneyGram, was it Amfinancial or Alipay that was baked in the bid to buy them? Do y'all remember? Anybody in the room remember that? Or can Google that really quick and make me feel smart? Ant, Ant Financial. How many in the room have heard of Ant Financial? How many think Ant Financial have the largest market cap in about two more years? You're all wrong. Ant Financial is going to freaking be a... In my opinion, I'm disagreeing with all of you. I think Ant Financial out of China is going to be a ridiculous piece. I really do. I'm, I'm buying into that. And I want to actually... Time to that real quick. I'm talking about China and David and privacy because I'm completely going where I shouldn't do. How many have seen the, um, the citizenship breaking? You get like a credit score that's happening in China right now. Yeah. And through, yeah, you are actually granted a score based on your social behavior, how you act in society. Yeah. It's the, the person in the back said it's terrifying and really scary. Does anybody disagree with that? America, I agree frickin' 100%. Catherine oh, Catherine, put your hand up. Walk over, grab a mic. I love when she disagrees, because this is like being with her. What do you, what do you think of that? Really, Don't what's the good in it? Don't be a jerk, man. I mean, the whole, look at a company like Tala. They are building their whole business on understanding social behavior in underserved markets. So if you've been talking to the same people for a long time, that demonstrates that you have potentially more financial integrity than somebody who hasn't. And so I think that's a really important measure. I think that let's not overlook the, the social implications, our behavior, and how that impacts our financial behavior. And, I, and I've, I've got a little add to that. Yeah. Um, when you think about just populations in general who are disenfranchised from being able to have a part in the financial uh, scheme of economics, that it allows them, other than having a credit score, there's other behavioral things, how do you manage money? Are you keen to take on risk? All those kind of things help put together a picture that may give financial access that they may not have otherwise. Now, the issue is ethics. You could put bias into a process, especially if you're using you know, artificial intelligence or whatever, and you could actually disenfranchise a whole group of people based on their behavior. So that's the other side of the coin. 
How many completely disagree with Catherine on that, by the way? Because I know you were freaking terrified in the back. <laughs> Who's brave enough? Do you work for Cabbage? No. Damn, that would have been awesome. Does any someone from Cabbage disagree right now? Dude in the back. Do, do you still think that's freaking terrifying? Beard guy? He gave me a thumbs up. Yeah, it's... I think I will say this, and I really do believe this, and I think we've had this conversation before, Ginger. The definition of privacy, privacy for our London folks, is ever changing, is it not? I mean, when, when you look at your kids and mine, you got way too many kids like I do. I think I have the when same they're adults, kids that you do. Yeah, but later in life. Yeah, see, I got mine out early. Um, <laughs> so I, I agree with Catherine, and I think, and, and with Howard, I think that the the use of alternate sources for information for folks on the, within credit files is huge. It's a, it's a, a great benefit. I think, but I think that the, the challenge is, and you came out and you called out China, which is always scary for a lot of reasons. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of risk, as you said, that this data could be used incorrectly, badly, harmfully, right? I think that's where the trouble comes in. So let's get disenfranchised folks into the system, but let's figure out a way to use that data with integrity. And I love who Catherine actually called out. There's a company called Talia, and I'm slaughtering the name, uh, the founder of it. Tala, what? Come on, Rob. I can't say your last name. Who is, uh, how many know Chris Saka, the VC? He, sa- I, he did an interview. I was listening to him. He sat next to her, had no clue who she was at a fundraiser. And within a 10-minute conversation of hers, he invested several million. Because it is, it is that freaking awesome of a solution. And we're going to get her on the show one day. But now we got to end our time with the two of them. So Howard, Ginger, we love you. Thank you so much. We, um, we always end our show on one of those what the kind of moments. Um, Simone, will you queue up that video? All right. So I don't know how many of you saw this on YouTube, but this video that you're seeing right now happened in South Korea. This woman got a divorce from her husband, went into their bank account, took out $14,000 worth of it, and got followed by the cops on a car chase through Seoul. She dished out $14,000 in cash throughout the streets of Seoul. Problem is in, in Seoul, if you if you pick up money, it's considered stealing. So so they actually recovered the I believe the fourteen thousand dollars. Two reasons that wouldn't happen in Atlanta. One, she wouldn't move anywhere. <laughs> so a big fucking pile of cash that was sitting there. And two, seriously, the car would be gone. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. All right, all right. But I do love that story. You go, Korea, and and bless her. That, you know, good for her. All right, that's going to wrap it up for us, folks. Um, a couple of things we'd like to say. One, we got to thank Cabbage for letting us do this as much as Cabbage. Um, I mean, Rob and Kath have been way too good to us at 11FS, and we actually do love Catherine <laughs> a lot. Um, we really want to thank them. Their team has been fantastic. Kelly, um, the folks up front, everybody, the help that you gave us, we love it. Um, our media team, so Simone and Laura on No Sleep have done all this. Everything you see was two people putting this together. We did nothing. So if you give them a hand, we'd love it. We want to thank you because you did. The turnout is ridiculous. We love it. Atlanta. There's nothing else to say. Give us a shout out. Woo-hoo!